Hi, this is Cutie Clinic, brought to you by Room Now's expanded coverage of virtual ACR 2020. This case is wrong x-ray, wrong doctor, wrong drug. A 29-year-old fellow comes in to see me with a history of buttock pain. You already know the diagnosis, don't you? Turns out for the last four years, he's had some low back pain and intermittent buttock pain. The pain is worse at night. Um, he has two to three hours of morning stiffness. He has been going to a bunch of doctors. He started out first with his primary care doctor. We did labs and x-rays of his back. They were normal. Then went to one orthopedist, then another orthopedist, then a physical therapist, then a physiatrist, then another back specialist orthopedist who did an MRI of his lower spine. Luckily enough, the MRI of his lower spine included the pelvis and SI joint, although it wasn't ordered as such. And yes, they found unilateral sacroiliitis. They found bone marrow edema on both sides of the SI joint. Uh, there were no erosions in the SI joint, but bone marrow edema and other inflammatory changes to suggest unilateral sacroiliitis and no other diagnosis. So the story here is we have a young man 30 who has um, inflammatory low back pain. Uh, this is sort of the hallmark presentation of someone who has ankylosing spondylitis or a spondyloarthropathy. X-rays were not done. I ordered those. We'll see what those come back. But I'm sure there'll be some changes there so that this does in fact qualify as axial spondyloarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. He is HLA-B27 positive. Never checked before. His labs were actually normal. His sed rate, CRP, uh, chemistries, and blood counts were all normal. The message here is, I think, uh, again, wrong x-rays. Young men, young patients who have uh, inflammatory back pain should always have an x-ray that includes the uh, pelvis and SI joints. Problem is, they always get LS spine films and it will often miss this diagnosis. Wrong doctors flopping around between PM&R, PCPs, and ortho didn't do very well here. And of course, he was treated with the wrong drug. He was taking Tylenol, over-the-counter medicines, given an occasional prescription for a non-steroidal that he didn't know that he should take on a regular basis. So the, the fellow's been in pain for quite some time. This is a big problem. As you may know, there are substantial delays in the diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. On average, seven to eight years. It is amazing in this day and age, with all the notice that spondylitis has gotten over the years, all the drugs being approved for spondylitis, you know, perpetuating the, the, the story, the presentation, the evaluation, and the new therapies, that this really hasn't changed very much. In fact, most patients diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis are not diagnosed by rheumatologists. There, it takes many years to get to the rheumatologist. In fact, the, that number I mentioned earlier, seven, eight years, that might be the number it takes. So maybe you have to fail three, four, five doctors before you finally get referred to the rheumatologist. I think we as the teachers of the masses, uh, not just patients, but also other clinicians, need to perpetuate this story that inflammatory back pain in someone you know under the age of 30, under the age of 40, should always prompt a B27 and pelvic x-rays. Um, in that instance, this man would have at least been able to avert four years of pain and disability. 
Uh, and now he's going to go bungee jumping and join the Marines now that he's been started on uh, effective biologic therapy. So again, wrong x-rays, wrong doctors, wrong drugs usually don't speak well for the patients, but thank God the rheumatologist is here to save the day. Be sure to check out Room Now's expanded coverage of ACR 2020, the virtual meeting. We've got a lot of new exciting things coming up. It's a new way to learn. It's a grand new world. Aren't we enjoying it? This is QD Clinic brought to you by Room Now's expanded coverage of 2020 virtual ACR meeting. It's going to be exciting. Today's case, oh, by the way, I'm Dr. Jack Cush. I work for Room Now. Today's case, Nancy No Show. Nancy No Show didn't show this morning, and I had a free hour to begin my day. Uh, that was kind of nice because I got a lot of work in, answered some emails, um, you know, took a walk around the block, and uh, it didn't make any money and didn't do any good. So Nancy No Show's done this before. Maybe Nancy No Show is a first-time consult like my new patient today that didn't show. The question is, how do you handle no-shows and how do I handle them? Um, I struggle with these just as much as anyone else. The uh, no-show rate um, that uh, most rheumatologists experience varies quite a bit. Uh, it can be as low as single digits but most of you have a no-show rate of somewhere between uh, 12 and 20 percent. Um, most business models uh, in rheumatology would say that uh, you need to keep your no-show rate down less than 10 percent. If you had a static number that in fact was predictable, you could work against that and do what the airlines do and just overbook. Um, and then when everybody shows up, just throw it into high gear so that you can meet your workload for that day. Uh, on the other hand, most of us don't do that. Most of us want to have our time accounted for, um, knowing that at 2 o'clock I'm seeing this patient, at 3 o'clock I'm seeing that patient, and at 4.30 I'm checking out. But um, unpredictability is bad for business. Uh, again, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for you. It's frustrating for the patients. No-shows often have lots of good excuses. And by no-show, I mean people who don't call ahead of time and say, my car broke down, my child is sick, I can't make it tomorrow, can I reschedule? You know, there you have the opportunity to fill in. So let me give you some uh, perspective on this. Number one, uh, there is research out there about no-shows, that it is um, higher in non-whites, meaning whites are more likely to be um, on time and actually make the visit. Uh, it's about 10% lower for non-whites compared to whites in a few studies. Um, it is, uh, um, people are more likely to keep their appointments when they're over the age of 65. I don't think that has to do with whether or not they're working or retired. I think it just is that medicine becomes more important as one gets older. Younger people are less likely to make those appointments. Uh, you could also predict no-shows based on patients who have psychosocial problems and certainly people who have a prior history of prior no-shows. They're likely to be recidivists and make that mistake. There is, uh, again, there are studies showing that you can actually predict no-shows based on those four factors of age, race, whether they're psychosocial factors or prior no-shows. Uh, what can you do about this? Well, the number one uh, way of, uh, of reducing no-shows is reminders. Uh, there are a lot of reminder systems out there. You can be simple as... Um, 
snail mail and sending someone a reminder in the mail, uh, having automated systems where patients can choose how they're going to get their, receive their notice by text, by email, by phone call, um, Pony Express, whatever they want. It's tailored to them. Those are, are services one pays for. Um, many of you just have your staff as part of today's duties to call tomorrow's patients to remind them. The data shows that no-show rates drop by uh, as much as 50%. So one study showed it went from 10 to 5%. Another study showed it went from 8 to 4%. I think when you've got like a 20% no-show rate, I don't think it's going to go to 10%, but it certainly gets better. So uh, reminders make sense. The other thing that is often not done and should be done is setting expectations, meaning you as the clinician need to, at the end of your visit, say, next time when I see you in three months, we're going to discuss X, Y, and Z. It's very important that I see you then so we know whether this drug is working, whether your labs have gotten better, whether we can show that this medicine has continued to be safe. You know, again, we next time we can talk about pregnancy because we didn't have time to talk about it this time. You know, set an expectation, make it like a soap opera, tune in tomorrow, days of our rheumatologic lives, and again, it makes sort of sense to set an expectation. Likewise, your staff, when they check patients out, can set an expectation. There's an interesting model in one of the family practice journals that talked about um, setting up a virtual doctor visit, meaning the patients who are criminals, the no-showers. Um, they now go into a bin and they are notified that you're now in an alternative schedule, meaning you don't really have an appointment, but you have an appointment with our virtual doctor. And then if and when you show up, you get slotted in, in sort of a chronological order beside someone who has a scheduled appointment, and the doctor will try to squeeze you in. I kind of do a version of this on my own right now, although I kind of tell patients, you're last in line. If I've got three people waiting, you're the fourth person I'm going to see, and that's the price you're going to have to pay to be when you've been called a, a, a repeat no-show. And that's usually people who've had um, more than three no-show events in a one- or two-year period. Uh, and lastly, you could go with what you're now becoming expert at, and that is virtual medical visits meaning it's, no, uh, it's less skin um, off of your shoulder that when a patient doesn't show for a virtual visit because there are other virtual consults that you could slot in in very short notice. So the idea is use your virtual medicine days as a way of seeing those no-show patients. Now, that's a bit problematic because sometimes the virtual no-shows or, or, or the real no-shows are people who really do need to be seen face-to-face -face for an accurate joint exam for better instruction for things that one can only do in a face-to-face -face visit. But again, we're trying to salvage, one, the patient care, and two, the, the finances, uh, and three, the workflow by having a strategy for no-shows. Think about it. Let me know what you think. That's it for this edition of QD Clinic. You can, again, follow us uh, on Room Now, uh, see what we're going to do for ACR 2020. We'll see you there. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by the 2020 ACR annual meeting. It's all virtual. Room Now will be there. You give us two hours, we'll give you the meeting. Today's case, the DMART bailout. Saw a gentleman a few days ago, 70-year-old male, 
Um, serious, bad, erosive, deforming, polyarticular RA. Been on a lot of different medicines. More recently was on prednisone, leflunamide, um, Zeljance, and a few other drugs. Uh, and at this visit, the patient said, uh, yeah, I'm no longer taking that leflunamide medicine. And, of course, I do my little cocked head, quizzical look. Again, when I'm wearing a mask and goggles, I'm not sure it makes any difference. Uh, and I say, well, what's that about? And, you know, he told me a story about what happened. And so, uh, and I think the question is, how do you handle the uh, DMARD bailout? Patient um, makes the decision, or someone else makes the decision, not you, that um, this drug is no longer needed. Uh, this could be, we could be talking about any drug here, but I'm choosing DMARDs because they're supposed to be disease-modifying, and that's the intent by which you gave it. Hence, patient's not taking it. We're looking at suboptimal therapy, are we not? I think you could think about this in three different ways. The patients bail out on a drug either because of the patient choice or because another MD got involved or third, external forces beyond our control, you know, like a hurricane or something. When the patient chooses to stop the drug, for whatever reason, I think rather than getting all pissy and looking at them like, are you crazy? Like, what were you thinking? Um, you know, these are all my inclinations. I think the interesting thing is to say, well, tell me what that's all about and tell me how you're doing. Because they bailed out. The question is, was that a good idea or a bad idea? They already have the history that's going to give you the answer. If it turned out to be okay and not a bad idea, there's no point in coming down hard on the patient. If was a bad idea, you say, gee, that wasn't really a good idea. Either way, you always make the point, I want you to know these medicines that I give you, they're mine. I'm the expert. I wrote the prescription. I'm responsible for it. Think about it like I'm lending you my Mustang and you can drive it around. I don't want you to paint my Mustang or, you know, you know drive on the beach with it. Um, you know, certain things you probably should ask for my permission. So, um, before you sell my Mustang, give me a call. The same thing with these DMARDs or biologics. You know, realize that you should let me know when someone else or you want to do something with my medicine. Otherwise, you know, there's a consequence there that could be damaging, and I don't want that to happen. Call me. I'll tell you whether you can stop or not, or whether you need to stop when you're going to have surgery, or because you're going on vacation, or because someone else wants to stop it. Give me a call. Second scenario, the patient stopped because... Dr. Schmo told him, we have to stop that medicine now. Surgery, hospitalization, always like, seems like a good idea to the patient. It's always a bad idea as far as we're concerned because it never needs to be stopped in those situations. It's being stopped by someone who knows nothing about the medicine or at best gets their education from the television about that medicine. There, again, if it's the other physician that did this, there's only one remedy and it does take a little bit of your effort and that is either write a note to that doctor or give him a call. Dr. Schmo, Dr. Kush here. Uh, Mr. Smith says you stopped his uh, methotrexate. Is that true? Why would you do that? Uh, uh, and, you know, then they're like double talking and hemming and hawing and say, oh, he misunderstood. And, but you know what? Dr. Smith, is, Dr. Schmo, excuse me, is never going to do that again. Lastly, external forces, insurance companies, you know, bad deliveries, uh, pharmacy issues, refill issues, dog ate my homework, again, beyond the patient's control, and they never restarted the medicine. And there, the answer is real simple. It's like the first, uh, first scenario. 
this, this thing called the phone. If things are not going well with regard to medicine, please call my office and I'll fix it. I think the bottom line is that, you know, bailing out on a DMART is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing. The patient can be managed with less medicine. This way you're not contributing to polypharmacy, which is a gigantic problem in many of our patients, especially as they get older, especially as they get more complex. I think that it's really about negotiating. It's about setting expectations with patients and letting them know that they can call you to find out what to do when considering stopping a medicine. That's it for the DMARD bailout. Again, you give us two hours, we'll give you the ACR meeting virtually. We have a lot of interesting plans. It's all about um, ways that you can engage and learn and get perspectives on the data and new studies being presented. These are the things we'll be highlighting uh, at Room Now come November for the virtual ACR meeting. We'll see you then. Take care.